Welcome to Hope Awakens, brought to you by It Is Written. This is night two, and I'm glad you've joined me. Tonight, your questions, a special guest to discuss an extremely important subject. And tonight, we go back in time. Back in time, so we can go forward with confidence. Thank you for being part of Hope Awakens. Thanks for joining us from Rotorua, from Henderson, from Hamilton, from Madison, Tennessee, from Columbia, Kentucky, from College Place, Washington, Spencerville, Maryland, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm excited to be with you tonight on Revelation Today, Hope Awakens. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Hope Awakens from It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. It Is Written is officially the seventh longest running program on American television. So there's a good chance you've connected with us there. We had a good time last night. Now, if you experienced technical challenges last night, I am hopeful and prayerful that it's going to be smooth sailing this evening. Now, as we begin, I want to let you know about a special gift, a book called Promises of Peace. For those of you who have registered at HopeAwakens.com, now, we are going to be emailing this to you. So if you get an email from us tomorrow with a, an attachment and it's this, Promises of Peace, then you know what it's all about and you'll be encouraged and I'm certain you'll be blessed. Also, to access your free study material, go to hopeawakens.study questions. I'll say that again. hopeawakens.study questions for tonight's study material. If you've got questions, please go to hopeawakens.com slash questions. Hope you can remember all that. For the ASL feed, it's available on the It Is Written YouTube channel. American Sign Language on the It Is Written YouTube channel. I'm glad you're here, and I'm encouraged that we've received questions. You know, we're going to do our very best to answer your questions each night. My friend Doug Naa is here to ask your questions. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for sharing questions tonight. Hey, John, it's good to be here with you and also with our viewers at Hope Awakens. And uh, we have a number of questions that have come in from last night. So looking forward to it. All right. Why do we start right now? What's first? Okay. So here's question number one. So you mentioned last night about pestilences and earthquakes as being a sign of the end. So Heidi here asks the question, but haven't there always been pestilences and earthquakes throughout history? That's a good question, Heidi. Thank you very much. If you look in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8, you'll see that the Bible says, Jesus himself speaking, saying, these things are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, it was Jesus, remember, who said that uh, pestilences and famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and myriad other things were signs that we were fast approaching the end. In fact, he said, when you see these things, know that it is near even at the doors. So we're not putting a date on it, not even a year on it, but Jesus said these are signs so you can know. Now, these things are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows really means something like birth pains. So just as birth pains increase in frequency and intensity, the closer we get to the arrival of the baby, so these signs are increasing in frequency and intensity. Look around the world today. It's not business as usual. It's not more of the same. I believe that we are being encouraged to see the signs that we cannot ignore telling us time is running out. That's a good one. Uh, here's another question that's come in. And uh, this question is from Philip. And so Philip asks, 
If I missed some of the meanings from last night, where can I find this if I wanted to go back and watch it again? Oh, yeah, sure. Visit us at hopeawakens.com or visit the It Is Written YouTube channel. You'll find us there as well. Hopeawakens.com or even itiswritten.tv. That's another good place that you can check it out. Good. Here's another question from Ken. And uh, Ken asks, I'm in Sydney, Australia. With this coronavirus, COVID-19, is this a sign Jesus is coming back? And what can we expect to see before his soon return? Oh, Ken, yeah, good question. By the way, g'day, Ken. I'm glad you've joined us from Australia. Uh, Yeah, it certainly is. In as much as Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 7, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. You know, Ken, if it was just this, I would be saying, ah, you know, don't put too much stock in it. But with so many other biblical signs being fulfilled, it would be foolhardy of us not to imagine that the coronavirus doesn't fall under the umbrella of those pestilences. And now go back. We've had mad cow disease and MERS and SARS and Ebola and H1N1. Isn't that uh, avian flu with swine flu? So these things are now stacking up on top of themselves. There's the HIV AIDS virus, you know, still no cure. By the way, tens of thousands of people die in the United States every year from the flu. We have scores of thousands of people who are diabetic and are dying from diabetes, heart disease. These are the socially acceptable diseases. And we all know people who are dealing with those. So taken as a whole, absolutely, this is a sign that we should be looking for. What else is going to happen? I'll take up too much question time if I answer that now, but you stick with us during Hope Awakens and you are going to see the Bible speaks of many other things that should take place, some of which are in the process of taking place right now. Thanks, Ken. Great question. There was a very good question. Uh, this one is from Jamie, and Jamie asks, I watched your seminar, but I didn't get the books at the end that you mentioned in your presentation yesterday. Where can I find them? Okay, you go to hopeawakens.com slash, no, 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 hopeawakens.study slash handouts. That's where you go. Hopeawakens.com. It's going to be hard for me to get through. Hopeawakens.study slash handouts. You'll find them there, Jamie. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be glad if you get them. If you don't, let me know. And if I got it, well, I'll mail them to you. Very good. Here's a question from uh, Blaine. And Blaine asks, um, how has the Bible changed your life? Oh, yeah. Well, Blaine, um, you know what I'll do? I'll wait a little while in Hope Awakens. And I'll take a lot of time to talk about that. Suffice to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I don't mean to be cliched. I, I lived a pretty a life outside of faith in God. God changed my life, made me a completely new person, gave me new hope and, and new wishes and wants and so forth. The Bible has impacted my life in a very, very big way. Not the person I used to be. Maybe not the person I ought to be, but God is growing me and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Those are the questions for tonight, but we want to encourage our viewers, John, to keep asking questions on hopeawakens.com or hopeawakens.com slash questions. And uh, those questions will come to me and we'll pass them on. But very good questions for tonight. Exactly. Thank you very much. And thank you for your question. As we begin tonight, I'd like to welcome a friend of mine. His name is Roy Ice. He's a good guy. He leads a media organization called Faith for Today, which is based in Southern California. Roy, welcome to Hope Awakens. 
Thank you so much, John. It's so great to see you. I, I love what you're doing. It's good to see you. I'm thrilled you're part of this tonight. Let me ask you straight up, or, or first up, how are you and your family doing right now with COVID-19, all the restrictions we're all facing? Are, are you doing okay? Everybody safe and well? Praise God. Uh, we're doing wonderful. And I have to tell you, um, God has blessed me with a family I love hanging out with. And so it's actually been really good to be able to spend more time with my boys, with my wife, and even my dogs. Yeah, a lot of happy dogs right now. You know, I don't mean to, to minimize the real challenges people are having, but there's also some upside, isn't there, for spending a little more time with your family, in some cases, a lot more time with your family. Now, Roy, you've dedicated your life to working with people. You've been in the trenches with all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. Right now, we're all trying to navigate this coronavirus maze, and although we know we are gonna get through, it might look to some people like it's a maze that doesn't have an outdoor. Now, there's a lot of fear right now. What I'd like you to do is talk to me about fear. What can people do about that? I love um, the, the topic that you asked me to speak about because, quite frankly, um, even though this time in our, in our life, in our experience, is bringing out this question of, of fear and, uh, and what hope do we have, the reality is fear has always been here. Um, I, I had quite an experience almost seven years ago that was probably the most frightening experience I've ever had in my life. Go ahead, tell me more about that, what happened? Well, at the shocker of all shockers was I had a heart attack. I was 43 years old, had a heart attack. I thought I was fit as a fiddle and uh, right in the middle of a church event, it was a Saturday night, um, my heart gave out. I just wasn't processing the stress right. I was two months on to a new job, and uh, I had a heart attack. For 11 and a half minutes, uh, they could not revive me. I was dead for 11 and a half minutes. Good night. So you're a young guy. You're a young guy. No, you're a younger guy then with a young family, a couple of kids, and uh, I mean, for 11 and a half minutes there, there was no Roy. So how does that impact you? How do you does that, does that cause you to carry some fears into the future? I think it must, mustn't it? Well, absolutely. What happened was, fortunately, um, my heart had gone into V-fib, and fortunately, there was an AED machine there, basically the thing that zap your heart back into pumping again. And fortunately, I was able to come back. And you think that would be the frightening experience, but that wasn't the frightening experience. It was, it was the month after that. For six weeks, I had rehab to try to get my heart um, working normally again. And I, I recall it was months of just wondering, am I, am I you know, forcing my heart to work too hard? Um, it, when I go to sleep right now, will I wake up? And it was just this constant, constant fear. And I'll never forget, um, it was just before Christmas time, going through you know, my devotions, reading the Bible. And I, I, I had read this text many, many times. But I, my eyes just stopped. The Spirit stopped me right at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, You are God's craftsmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. And it just hit me at, at that moment. Um, I was so focused on my fear of, of loss. I, I, I have a beautiful wife. I, I, at that time, had sons who were four and seven years old. I... I could have left them fatherless and, and husbandless. And it, 
that verse stopped me in my tracks and said, Roy, you have more hope than you're giving yourself. The reality is, if you focus on your fears, you're going to continue living this lifestyle of just always worrying about what may happen. The beautiful thing is that this verse tells you that uh, more than being a, a person and being passionate about things, you were actually born a purpose. God created you with an incredible life purpose that every single day I was given after coming back from that heart attack was an opportunity to live out God's purpose and to focus on that just completely helped me deal with the fear. Isn't that a fantastic thought? You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are finding themselves now, you know, anxious and things are coming apart, facing job loss and reality is reality. I don't want anybody to think we're saying, kind of sweeping that under the rug, but I love your approach. Uh, there's still a purpose and there's a future and God has a purpose. So today, how does that kind of uphold you as you, I don't know how much you look in the rearview mirror, but how does that uphold you and push you forward? Oh, definitely. Because as you can imagine, these are things that health issues are things that stick with you. And what it really did for me is it just helped me to refocus and redefine every new day. Uh, every new day that I woke up is another opportunity to live a life of purpose, to live a life that helps other people understand what love means, understand what God means, understand that this world is not getting any better, but we still have a future. And every single day is one day closer to that beautiful future that God is bringing. And so it truly helped me to uh, literally lower my stress of the fear of what might happen to my heart again by realizing that every beat of that heart was God saying, I'm giving you more time. I'm giving you more time to do something of value and meaning, not just in my own family, but to anybody he places into my path. Roy, fantastic. Thanks for encouraging me. Thanks for encouraging us all. Continued good health to you. Thanks again. Hey, God bless you, friend. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. Love you. Love what you're doing. And, and God bless all of you that are spending you. this time. Roy Ice from Faith for Today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our subject tonight, Hope Awakens. I want to pray with you before we go any further. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, bless us as we open the Bible. Bless us as we consult you. Guide us in your way and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with you this evening by taking a tiger by the tail. Now, I've not actually done that myself, but I did once take a lion by the tail. Two of them, in fact. That might be a story for another day. That was quite a moment. But let's think about this thing for a moment. You see this, and you know it's a tiger. Look, it's not a water buffalo. It's not a warthog. It's not an oak tree. That is a tiger. Tell me how you know that. Because you see the pattern and you say, that's a tiger because it just is. Okay, now this, this is a, tell me, a giraffe. Right, how do you know that? Because you'd recognize that pattern anywhere. That is absolutely a giraffe. Now, I know you think I'm getting tricky with you here, but hang in there with me. What's this? Okay, no prizes for knowing that that is a zebra. It's that pattern, isn't it? You know, it's not a skunk or a ground squirrel. They have stripes too. But that pattern, that zebra pattern gives it away. A pine cone has a pattern. It's intricate. Look at this. It is a nautilus, a beautiful, oh no, hold on. That's not a nautilus. That's a cabbage. Try, try, try eating a nautilus. It'll be a little bit different. 
Cabbage, distinct pattern. Pardon me, I should be able to tell one from the other. Ah, now that's a cabbage. Kidding. That's a nautilus, no doubt about it. Beautiful. They all have patterns, even cabbages. You'll find patterns in leaves. You'll find a pattern in a peacock's tail. Take a look at this. Beautiful. You'll find patterns in a beehive. Patterns are everywhere. A man on a game show in 1994 won the equivalent of almost $300,000 in today's money because he figured out the various light patterns on the game's prize board. The show was called Press Your Luck. He followed the pattern he figured out, just stuck with it religiously, and he won big. I'm going to show you a pattern tonight, and you'll win big. As we continue with Revelation today, Hope Awakens. When you see a pattern emerging, developing, you know it suggests something to you. You see ripples in the sand and you say, the wind has been blowing. We are going to see a pattern outlined that suggests something profoundly important to us. Now, I mentioned last night, and of course we know this well, we are living in unprecedented times. The coronavirus that continues to wreak havoc in this world, and in some places far more than others, caused us to ask big questions. We know that life is going to get back to normal. We hope sooner rather than later, but we're not even sure what normal is going to be. Maybe there'll be a new normal. You've heard that millions of jobs have been lost in the United States, and most every country is experiencing something similar. 17,000 jobs were lost in dental offices in March alone. That was March. And in March, another 12,000 jobs at doctor's offices. Hopefully, most of these are temporary losses. So many other examples I could give you. We're wondering if this is just another blip on the radar, but when we looked last night, we saw that what we're witnessing in the world today indicates we are seeing the fulfillment of the signs spoken of long ago by a Middle Eastern teacher. Signs that he said were indicators we're getting near the end of this world's history. You'd almost have to be willing not to see the signs to not see them. Now, this isn't a prediction as to how much longer planet Earth has, but we know that time is getting much shorter, and so we are looking for hope, for lasting hope. We're trying to navigate this stormy sea especially as people are faced with challenges they've never really had to deal with. If you can hardly go out of your home, that's frustrating. If you've lost your job, what happens next? You know, even rates of domestic violence are going up. We understand that communities are trying to prevent the spread of a disease that's claimed a lot of lives. I want to look at history with you because tonight we are going to anchor our studies to history. We're going to see a pattern in history, a pattern suggesting that there is a way forward for society today. Now, we both know that nations and kingdoms have come and gone. Just over a hundred years ago, the British Empire governed almost a quarter of the world's people. It was said that the sun never set on the British Empire. Today, the United Kingdom is a great nation, but the British Empire has nothing like that sort of influence. When Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997, it was said that was the end of the empire. A couple of years ago, I was in Sarajevo in the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina fascinating place. It was in Sarajevo that the event took place in 1914 that gave rise to World War I. A fellow named Gavrilo Princip shot and killed Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. He did it right there where the Latin bridge meets the street, right by that building that's pink on top. I've stood in that spot, a historic place. That there was an Austro-Hungarian empire comes as a surprise to a lot of people who haven't read that chapter in the history books. No disrespect intended, 
But today, you wouldn't normally think of either Austria or Hungary as guiding an empire, but that's what it was. Powerful in Central and Eastern Europe for more than 50 years. Rome was once a mighty empire that stretched basically from the south of Scotland or a little beyond further south in the northwest all the way through Europe and the Mediterranean. It was colossal and it was powerful. But today, people visit Rome to see ruins of a once mighty empire. Seems impossible that Rome would cease to be powerful, but that's how history went. The Mongolian Empire was once huge. It extended from the Sea of Japan over there in the east all the way across Eastern Europe out there in the west. Genghis Khan, or Chinggis Khan, as they call him in Mongolia today, was feared, a mighty ruler. Marco Polo wrote about the wealth of the Mongol Empire. But today, not an empire. Germany, you know, was once a collection of independent states, but then those states united into what is essentially Germany today. Keep in mind, not long ago, there was a country called East Germany. No longer. Some of us remember well the Soviet Union. In 1991, it had a population of almost 300 million people. Armenia and Georgia and Latvia and Moldova and many other countries were once folded into this colossus, but there've been big changes. So what's behind the rise and fall of nations? And what can we learn from this that would speak to us where we are today? Let's go to the Bible where we will see some remarkable details you are going to see a guiding hand in history like you might never have seen before. Now, I'm aware the Bible makes some incredible claims. Is it a trustworthy book? Just the idea that there is a God, that's a big concept. This book says that one day we'll be reunited with our departed loved ones. You read in this book, there'll be a day when there'll be no more death and no more sorrow. Those are enormous claims. Does it make sense to trust a God you've never seen? Imagine with me if it did. Genesis 1, verse 1, the Bible begins with these words, In the beginning, God created. God declared the world was very good. You know, there's a lot about the world today that's good, or great even. But there's a lot of things about it that you would not describe as very good. The Bible, it's made up of 66 books almost 1,200 chapters, more than 31,000 verses. It's said to be the Word of God. If what the Bible says is true, everlasting life, heaven, no more tears, that would be great. But why would we think that we should consult the Bible, especially at a time like this? This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, listen, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Notice what God says. He says, one of the reasons you can trust me is that I tell you things that are going to happen before they happen. When they happen, God says, your ability to trust me ought to increase. So, How many things has God predicted that have actually happened? And we are looking at this, I believe, uh, critically. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That's God predicting the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that's precisely what happened. In Matthew 2, wise men came from the east. They asked, 
where they would find the Messiah. And the Bible says they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, but unto you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew chapter 2. God predicted it hundreds of years before. It happened just as He said it would. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, the Bible said Jesus would be born of a virgin. That's what happened. God promised Jacob a son. What God promised occurred. Through Noah, God told the people living in the world the earth would be, a would be destroyed by a flood. That's what happened. Hosea 11 verse 1 said the Messiah would go into Egypt. You might remember not long after He was born, Jesus' parents took Him to Egypt. That's recorded in Matthew 2. God said there'd be a forerunner prior to Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist was that person. Isaiah said Messiah would be despised and rejected. He was certainly that. The Bible predicted Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Look at this in Zechariah chapter 11. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely prince that, that set on me, or that they set on me. You know, it goes on and says, I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Predicted and fulfilled. Psalm 22:15 said years before the event, the Messiah would suffer thirst as He hung on a cross. That's what happened. One verse later, God said the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Same chapter, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing. There are many others. All the way down to Psalm 22, 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words were repeated by Jesus in Matthew 27. There's so much more. You start to add these up and you realize we might just be talking about a reliable document. Either the Bible is worth consulting or it isn't. Could anyone get that lucky? Lucky enough to write a book that contains oodles of predictions and each one of those predictions comes to pass? Either this is the most incredible stroke of luck in history, or maybe the Bible is worth looking at. Let me suggest something to you. In a time where the world is challenged, really challenged, this isn't the only challenge we've ever had, but this is a unique challenge. At a time like that, don't you think you owe it to yourself to stop and say, it's the world's best-selling book, it has undergirded nations and movements and all kinds of people for hundreds and thousands of years. Don't you think it's time to look into this book and see what it says? I want to share with you a passage of the Bible that makes the point like no other. It's found in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. Let me give you some background. The book introduces us to a young man named Daniel who grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was attacked by Babylon six centuries before the birth of Jesus, and Daniel and many others was captured and taken into slavery in Babylon. While he was in Babylon, he impressed the king so much that he and three of his close friends were made advisors to the king. They were captives, but they were part of the king's inner circle. There's a lesson here. You don't have to be restricted by your station in life. No matter where you were born, no matter who your parents are, no matter what side of the tracks you lived on, God can bless your life, use you, elevate you, lift you up, promote you. He can do that in your life. 
So let's go to Daniel chapter 2. As we do, I'd like you to keep in mind just what we're doing. We are finding out if in this time of real concern in our world, whether or not there is something we can trust, and if there's a reason, you can find hope. You know, just after 9-11, my wife and I, and our baby boy at the time, were flying from North Carolina, where we lived at that time, to California. We had a layover in Minneapolis-St. Paul and uh, boarded an Airbus, and that's significant, an Airbus for the flights to our final destination. Now, if you're familiar with those planes, you'll be aware that they can make a weird noise when they're taxiing. It's a, it's a hydraulic noise. I could demonstrate for you, but it's better that I don't. So we're taxiing out before takeoff when passengers start pressing their call buttons all over the cabin of the plane. People were afraid that the sound the plane was making meant that the plane was in trouble or that we were all going to be in trouble. Remember, right after 9-11. So the pilot comes on and assures us we're okay. Then because people were so concerned, still, he brought out a mechanic to the plane and the mechanic gave it a thorough going over. The pilot comes back on and tells us everything's fine but 25 passengers insisted they be unloaded. There was a horrendous delay. But you know, the pilot had assured us the plane was safe. My faith was in him. If he was willing to fly, if he thought it was safe, I was okay with that. He had a family to get home to. He was not about to endanger himself or us. In my mind, as long as that pilot knew what he was doing, I was happy. In the next few minutes, you're going to find out that there is someone who knows what he's doing someone that you can trust. Daniel 2, we're starting in verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. He explained to them he'd had an impressive dream and he wanted them to tell him what it was and what it meant. Dreams were important to ancient kings because they believed the gods revealed their will through dreams. Let's read on. Daniel 2, verses 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation, which, of course, was quite a choice. It's fascinating, you know. Many people want to know the future, and they consult palm readers and mediums and fortune tellers and psychics who cannot read the future at all. I want to know where all the psychics were before the coronavirus, telling us there's a bad virus coming you ought to keep apart. That's not God's way of doing business. You certainly don't need a psychic or horoscopes, which are making something of a comeback, mystifies me, or a spirit medium to give you guidance. Let's keep looking here because we are going to find some remarkable guidance and we're going to see a pattern crystal clear. These Babylonian wise men probably were practiced in the art of astrology, predicting the future based on the movement of the stars they most likely practiced extispacy. That's almost certain. 
where they'd inspect the internal organs of slaughtered animals and check those organs for patterns and certain anomalies and then read the future based on that. No surprise, they weren't able to interpret the king's dream. So they said to Nebuchadnezzar, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. And oh yeah, they were, they were stalling for time. You and I would have done the same. The king says in verse nine, if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and they said something revealing. There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was very angry, very furious, gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the problem for Daniel was that he and his friends were considered to be among the wise men of Babylon not because they were magicians and fortune tellers, but because they'd proven themselves in Daniel chapter one when they first arrived in Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar sentenced the wise men to death, Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were implicated. Their lives were on the line too. So they did what everyone should do when confronted with a crisis like this. What'd they do? They prayed, and look what happened. Daniel 2, 17, it says this. Then Daniel went to his house, <clears throat> excuse me, and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. God answered their prayer. I want to encourage you to get in the habit of praying, of talking with God. Prayer means you're never isolated. You're never alone. It means that God is willing to be close to you and people need that. Think about this. The universe is vast. The Milky Way galaxy is at least 100,000 light years across. If you were traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, take 100,000 years to get across. It's huge. And the Milky Way is just one of billions of galaxies that exist. The universe is so vast. Yet when Daniel and his friends prayed, the God who made it all heard them and answered their prayer. How good is that? God reveals the king's dream to Daniel and Daniel comes to the fabulous courts of the planet's greatest monarch and reveals his dream to him. This is what he says, you, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 
you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel said, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Notice what he said, we, not me, we. That would be me and God. Imagine this king's astonishment as Daniel told him what his dream was. The lights would have come on as he remembered. And now Daniel's about to tell the king what the dream meant. We're tracing history here, and you are going to see an amazing pattern emerge. Remember those patterns? Honeycombs and leaves and cabbages and, and, and what else we have? Nautilus shells and you name it. We're about to see a pattern right now. Let's look at that dream. Daniel 2.37, you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, He has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. The kingdom of gold was Babylon, which ruled in the earth as a mighty city from 605 B.C. down to 539 B.C. It was a big city, bigger than Rome or Athens, huge, mighty. A letter from Nebuchadnezzar said of Babylon that the whole earth was prostrated Babylon's feet. He wrote, Babylon, the city which is the delight of my eyes, which I have glorified, may it last forever. But for all that, Babylon was going to fall. Verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. This was the kingdom of Medo-Persia a joint affair, the Medes and the Persians, which ruled from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. It was represented by the chest and arms of silver. I want you to notice something. The Bible is interpreting itself. We're not guessing what it means. The Bible points us to history, and later in Daniel, it says these very kingdoms by name. Verse 39 again, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. The third kingdom of brass was the next world ruling power, Greece, which ruled from 331 to 168. Under Alexander the Great, Greece conquered the world. Well, what then? This is Daniel 2.40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Vanquished by the armies of Rome, depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's dream by legs of iron. Historians refer to Rome as the Iron Kingdom. Where do you think they got that? Rome would rule until almost 500 AD. And I want you to keep something in mind as we see a pattern emerge, an unmistakable pattern, as unmistakable as stripes on a zebra or a tiger. All of this was predicted 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And we've seen it unfold exactly as God said it would. 
He predicted the rise of four world ruling kingdoms, not five, not three, not eight. And what God predicted came to pass. I'm going to suggest to you that we have identified a pattern. God said four kingdoms, four kingdoms rose. So far, so good. But let's turn good into stunning. Let's push it a little further. You ready? Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, what's that word? Divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. God says this last kingdom of Rome won't be conquered. It will divide. So what happened to Rome? Well, it wasn't conquered. Rather than being overthrown by another nation, it was repeatedly attacked by barbarian tribes and then kind of imploded. Rome ended up dividing into 10 nations, many of which became the nations of Europe that we recognize today. Notice what the prophet went on to say. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Rome was finally and irrevocably divided in 476 AD. God said Rome would divide into 10 nations, saying that after the legs of iron, Rome, there would be feet of iron and clay. Those 10 toes represent the 10 divisions into which Rome fell. We're seeing a pattern. Come on now, stay with me. Keep looking. Notice God says, although people will again try to reunite the Roman Empire, it's never going to happen. They will not adhere to one another. Over the years, many have tried and they've all failed. Napoleon tried to reunite the Roman Empire and he failed. Kaiser Wilhelm and others, all on a quest to reunite Europe. You know that Queen Victoria was known as the grandmother of Europe. King Christian IX of Denmark was known as the father-in-law of Europe. Eight European monarchs were grandchildren of one or the other of those two. But the Bible said that the nations of Europe would not adhere to one another. They wouldn't cleave. They wouldn't stick back together. So look what's happening in Europe today. The Eurozone is in disarray. There's disunity. We've had Brexit. God said they shall not cleave or adhere to one another. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I know a fellow, a friend of mine, whose grandfather was in the German army during World War II. As a committed Christian, life in the German military was difficult for this man. But in spite of frequent ridicule and antagonism, he maintained his faith in God and his belief that the Bible was truly God's word. His name was Franz Hasel. One day, he was invited by a superior officer to bring his Bible to a morning meeting. He was surprised to find two other officers present at that meeting, including a lieutenant who had been hostile to Franz and his faith in God. During their discussion, Franz took the opportunity to ask the gentleman a few questions of his own, remembering that in civilian life, the captain had been a history professor. 
So Franz asked him, could I check the historical accuracy of some of the Bible's prophecies? The captain was gracious and said, yes, go right ahead. While the men listened in rapt attention, Franz detailed the prophecy from Daniel 2 and interpreted it for the German army officers, explaining from history that after Babylon came the kingdoms of Medo-Persia, Greece, then the Iron Monarchy of Rome. The former history professor was impressed. Everything is accurate, he said. I've never heard anything so amazing in my life. But then Franz explained the rest of the dream. He actually took his life in his hands when he explained to them that the 10 toes on the feet of the image represented the 10 nations into which the Roman Empire dissolved. He explained they wouldn't come back together. By now, these men were far from Germany. In fact, they were so far from home that they had crossed the border into Asia. Franz explained to his superiors that in spite of the best efforts on the part of military and political leaders, the divided Roman Empire could never be brought back together. In other words, Franz told them, the Bible makes clear that Hitler is doomed to fail. And if Hitler was going to fail, then Franz's company, over a thousand miles from home, right out there on the Russian front, would certainly fail too. They were doomed. If what he was saying was true, the likelihood of any one of those men in that room that morning ever making it home was extremely remote. For France to even suggest that Hitler might not win the war was a punishable offense. It was treasonous. But based on that pattern we've seen in the Bible, the military men knew they were involved in plans for the world far greater than the plans of Adolf Hitler. They realized that based on what they'd recognized to be true from the Bible, they were involved in the outworking of the purposes of God himself. Franz chose his words very carefully. Sir, he said, the Bible's predictions have been proved accurate again and again. He might have been thinking of Micah, and the, and the prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He might have been thinking of Hosea and the prophecy that said the Messiah would go to Egypt. He might have been thinking of Psalm 22 where it predicted Jesus would cry out on the cross. He might have been thinking of where the Bible said in the Old Testament, the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. He might have been thinking about Isaiah saying that Jesus would be despised and rejected, that he would make his grave with the rich in his death. He went on and he said, if these predictions are accurate here, it means that we're fighting a losing battle. The captain abruptly dismissed the meeting and asked Franz if he could borrow that Bible. A week later, he approached Franz and gave him an order that would save their lives. He told him, to begin stockpiling gasoline so that when the, when the end of the war came, they'd have enough fuel to make it back home. So when Hitler was defeated and the time came for German troops to withdraw from Russia and flee to Germany and safety, Franz's company, Pioneer Park Company 699, had the fuel it needed to travel that long distance and make it safely home.
not one soldier was lost. God said four kingdoms. Then they divide. It all happened exactly as predicted. Now, I want to say this with respect, but if you are a skeptic, you've got to be seriously considering the claims of this book. How can you not? I'll say this too. If your faith is wavering, you've got to admit that there's something amazing, not only about this book, but about the one who inspired its writing. I hope you've noticed the pattern we've seen. And we know now that a person can have hope in a world that seems to be spinning out of control. How do I know that? Well, look at this. This is what happens next. Daniel 2, starting in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome divides into nations. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. And the interpretation is, what's that word? Sure. I wanted you to notice, I want you to notice what we've seen. In this unprecedented time, a time of fear for so many, a time of doubt, a time of worry, a time of concern, a time of illness, a time of death, what we see is a pattern. Let me just share something with you here. I've been fortunate that the coronavirus has not come near my immediate family. Uh, I think I told you last night, I have family whose family has got sick, nothing serious, thankfully, but no, no one real close to me. So that just means that somehow we've been really fortunate. I'll tell you what though, when people started making run, runs on the supermarkets, eh, I wasn't too worried at all. Not at all. Toilet paper disappearing. Oddly enough, I think I told you, 150 toilet paper manufacturers in the United States. We import 10% of our toilet paper. The last thing we're going to run out of is toilet paper. The last thing. But then when people started to say, maybe we're going to restrict visits to the supermarket. Yeah, I thought about that. I said, this sounds, this sounds ominous. Things are shutting down. I wondered... Where are we going? But I remembered this. We've seen a pattern. God predicts the rise and fall of nations. And notice, things happen according to what he says. There's someone in charge. He knows what's going on. He knows what he's doing. He's not asleep at the wheel. And at the end of this rise and fall of nations, Jesus returns to the earth. We saw last night that we are getting closer. We see tonight corroborating evidence. It is true. There's someone we can trust. It's not time for fear. It's tough, but there's someone with you.
Who is that? A good God. Someone who wants you to know him. Someone who wants you to look forward with confidence. The great news is there is a better day coming. Jesus is coming back. What's the pattern? The pattern is that God predicts and something happens in accordance with his word. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, they came right on time and just as God said they would. That last one, Rome, so mighty. You know, I've been in many parts of the world where the Romans have left evidence that they were there. Magnificent structures and temples and buildings, fabulous. Rome got around. It's hard to imagine that kingdom would ever pass away, but God said it will. And it did. God said it will divide. It divided. And what next? God says the end of all things, a glorious ending, the best thing you could ever look forward to. How does that relate to where you are right now? Let me tell you, whatever your circumstances, you know things are going to get better and a whole lot better. However, it seems the world is as you look around. You don't like the politicians. You don't like decisions being made. You are disturbed or perhaps unnerved. Things are going to work out okay in the end. I hope you're safe where you are. I certainly do. But we know one day we're going to live in a place where safety? Not even a question. If you're dealing with health challenges, you know about that place. This book says the inhabitant thereof will never say, I am sick. Isn't that good news? The challenges of this world will be gone. And what does that world have for us? Better things than we could ever imagine. So I'd like to give you additional hope. You say, okay, the end is coming. Do I need to fear? No, you do not. How can I be ready for what's coming? How can I possibly be good enough? People have been asking that question for millennia, and it's the wrong question. You know why? Nowhere God says you got to be good enough. You've got to be strong enough. Nowhere does he say that. Instead, he says that he will make his strength perfect in your weakness. He says that he would live his life in you and through you to will and to do for his good pleasure. How about that? When we say it's too tough, that's an opportunity for us to ask God to enter into our lives and do what we cannot. When we realize we are too weak, that's not a time to say, I'll try harder. That's a time to say, I'll yield my life so that God can do in my life what he wants to do. This one who set up kingdoms and took down kingdoms, if he's that mighty, surely he can lift up your life and keep you right where you need to be. See the pattern? What do we see? Giraffes, magnificent. Animals, plants, the things of nature, patterns. Look into the Bible, you see another one. An incredible pattern where God says, you can see my hand in history. And if you can discern my hand in history, then you know I'm going to lead you into the future. The question is simply this. Are you willing to be led? If you're not sure, 
Would you think about it? In fact, would you pray about it? Would you ask God to make himself real? And would you take a Bible? If you don't have one, read it online. Take a Bible and read some of its pages and ask yourself if this isn't a book that can bless you. I spoke to a man and his wife one night. Um, she had said to me that he had all kinds of problems. Please talk to my husband. The husband, when we got together, admitted that he was a problematic sort of individual. He said, but I know what that book says. I just kind of moved on. Huh. I said, all right. The wife was very willing to tell me all about his problems. I said, no, let's leave the problems for now. Let's just talk about the solution. I said, would you do something for me? Maybe. Do you have a Bible? Yes, I do. Okay. Would you pick it up? Read it. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And when you find Jesus, just write down what he's like. Write it on a page. And when you figure you've got enough of it on a page, take that page and read it through and just ask yourself, do you want a person like Jesus in your life? A few days later, his wife passed by me in tears. She couldn't speak. I thought something was terribly wrong. His daughter stopped and said, he did what you said. He read in one of the Gospels, wrote down what he found, read it back, and he said, I'd be a fool not to have that man in my life. It was the best decision he'd ever made. I want to pray for you tonight as hope awakens in your heart. We've seen the hand of God in history. We're going to see the hand of God in our present and on to the brightest future we could imagine. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, the one who inhabits eternity, I am grateful that tonight your word has spoken to us. We've seen your hand in the past. We believe in your hand in the present. We expect to see you lead us to a glorious future. Let hope awaken in our hearts and lives, I pray. Bless us. Speak to our concerns. Keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Remember your special gift tonight, a book called Promises of Peace. If you're registered at hopeawakens.com, you can know that we will email you tomorrow. Look out for that email. To get your study material, go to hopeawakens.study handouts. Questions, go to hopeawakens.com questions. Remember, ASL is on the It Is Written YouTube channel. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you in a couple of days for more Hope Awakens from It Is Written.